So we're continuing our series in Exodus. In fact, we're really starting it because last week was an introduction to the book and the main point last week was that God reveals himself to us in and through his word and he tells us how we should respond to him when he reveals himself to us and he shows the glory of himself when people's lives are transformed as they respond rightly to him when he reveals himself in his word. So with that as our background, understanding that God is telling us in his word about himself so that we might learn from him, then we're continuing our study now and we're going to be going into the topic which is entitled God is always at work and our portion is Exodus chapter 1 and it's the first eight verses. Exodus 1 and verses 1 to 8. So take your Bibles and we'll read that together. Exodus 1 and verse 1. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher, all the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation died. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Actually, we'll leave the reading there. It's the first seven verses. I want us to see from this, and I think this is what God is showing us, as the book of Exodus was being written by Moses, he has to give it some context and he has to give it some history because of what it's going to take us into. And here's the history at the beginning. God is working, and God is working and always working because God has said he will do something. And when God says he will do something, he will fulfill it. That's a fundamental thing for us to believe and to continue to trust in. That when God, the creator of all things, including ourselves, reveals himself and says, I will do this. He as the one who has authority over everything and anyone. If he says he'll do it, he will do it. And here, right at the beginning of the book of Exodus, uh, Moses, under the spirit of God, as he was guided to pull the account of the Exodus together tells us the history. Now, you can race over those first seven verses and then want to get into to the story, but we're stopping here. And because God is at work, because God said hundreds of years before that he would do something. And what he would do is what the rest of the book of Exodus is about. But he's been at work in the hundreds of years before this. We're looking to the past and Moses was doing the same thing here. God keeps his promises in his timescales so that his glory is revealed for the ultimate and eternal joy of those who believe in him and believe in his promises. I'm going to repeat that. God keeps his promises in his timescales so that his glory, who he is, is revealed. And it's for the ultimate an eternal joy of those who will trust him, who will believe him, and believe in the things that he has said. 
That's what it means to be a Christian. You know, the things that God has promised, and we're thinking about promises today, but I'd like you to think about another word when I say the word promise. Think of the word covenant. Because God had, um, as we'll see in a moment, had made a covenant with the forefathers of the people that are then the focus of the book of Exodus. He'd made a covenant. It was a promise. It was a deeper thing than a promise. In fact, a covenant was an agreement in which there were multiple promises that God said he would fulfill. You know, a covenant is more than a contract. A covenant is an agreement of love towards somebody else. It's actually when two parties agree on the basis of benefiting the other. A covenant looks to the benefit of the other. The other party is in view. It's not about me, it's about you. It's a blend of law and love. And maybe the best example that we can point to today is a God-honoring marriage. When a marriage is between a man and a woman made before God, as we would understand it from God's word, it's a legal thing, but it's because of love. And it's a commitment for the benefit of the other. But of course, you're doing it out of love. Now that's how God works. And God, as we'll see, had made a covenant agreement. And the law, what was the standard? It was himself, because there is none higher. And God says, this is what I want to do for you. Come into it and enjoy it. And Christians today are part of what's called in the New Testament by Jesus himself, the new covenant. We're looking at covenants that were made thousands of years ago, but we'll think at the end about the new covenant that we're brought into. It's God saying, I'll do this for you. I'll bind myself to do this by myself, according to my own name. And this is for your benefit. God brings us into a covenant for our benefit, but our response, so that we might become beneficiaries of the covenant, is accepting it that we do it for God's pleasure too. In a marriage, the pleasure is between the two. You enter into it for the benefit of the other, but you have pleasure in that. So it is with God. And he makes a covenant agreement with all of the promises that are within that. And he says, I will do this for you. Come into it. And I will take pleasure in you as you do that. What a wonderful thing we're going to be thinking of. Now, the importance of looking to the past, we touched on this last week. We're responsible to look to the past so that we might be encouraged for the future. Christians, especially, have reason to look back because in looking back at the past um, and seeing what happened in the past, it reinforces our hope in the future, in the things that God has promised that will yet come to us as part of his covenant agreement with us, as part of all those promises that he gives to us. Looking back, we see the faithfulness of God to it. And we're reinforced in our faith. It's bolstered because we're seeing God at work. And it's here in this. I'm, I'm coming to it. I am. God is always working to accomplish his promises within his covenant agreements with people. And it's in his timescales, which can often be very different from our timescales. And that was the case here. Let's be careful. I just say this um, as Christians. Let's be careful to have the attitude of, well, 
forget what was behind and, and look to the future. And that's the thing that many people in the world will say, and I, I hear Christians say it, just forget the past and move on to the future. One level, there's benefit to it. But when you're taking what Paul said in Philippians 3 verse 13, where he said, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal and the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. If you're bringing it into that sort of statement, that's a misapplication of what Paul was saying. Paul was saying, and earlier in chapter 3, he says, this is what I was before. The best of Pharisees. I was something special. But God came in and intervened in my life. And Christ Jesus, I had a personal encounter with him. And all of that is now gone. So forgetting all of that stuff that I had pursued for myself, I press on to what is ahead. Paul, as we know through his writings, was one who constantly looked back. He looked back to see what God had done in the past so that his faith and he might encourage the faith of those to whom he wrote and to those to whom he was preaching. He might say, look at the past, look what God has done and then live your future in light of that. So let's not be those who say, well, forget the past and move on. Of course, there are things in our past we'd rather forget. And thankfully, God in his mercy through what Christ has done, enables forgiveness for things that we would uh, wish we'd never, ever thought of or done. We can leave those behind, of course. But let's look to the past in the right way that we might be encouraged for our future to see that God is always at work according to his timescales for the benefit and blessing of those who will trust him. And in that, he reveals his glory to us. This is the real stuff of faith in God. And I'm convicted by this to the point as to say that if someone at some point in their life says, yes, Jesus is my saviour. He died for me on the cross. He is the one who has, has died to save me from an eternity away from God. Described as the lake of fire and eternal torment, eternal destruction. Away from that, Christ has died to save me. But then their life does not show in any way whatsoever that they have a hope in the promises that God has made for this life and for what is yet to come. It's not our place to judge, but sometimes we need to be careful that we're not laying hold of something and thinking we've got what it is, the saving faith that the Bible speaks of. For, for me, as I study it, the saving faith that God speaks of is seeing that in Christ all of the promises of God are fulfilled and that we lay hold of that and we don't let it go. And our hope every day is in Christ Jesus and everything that is going to come to us because of what God has done for us in him. Yes, there may be days when He's far from our thinking. But if there's nothing that shapes the rest of our lives, after we make that statement that, yes, Jesus is my saviour, then maybe some of us might need to go back and check that. Because God calls us to a life, brings us into a covenant where what we do in response to what he has done then shapes the rest of our life. And it's unmistakable what is seen and evidenced. How do we get this from the first seven verses of Exodus chapter 1? It goes back 430 years <clears throat> with Jacob 
arriving in Egypt with 70 people of his extended family. Um, one of his sons, Joseph, was already in Egypt. I don't have time to go into that, that story. Um, he had been rejected by his brothers when he was young and sold as a slave into Egypt because these people had been moving around. Jacob and his sons had been moving around in the area of Canaan. They'd been sold. But Joseph came through some very difficult circumstances eventually to be second in command to Pharaoh. A remarkable story of God working in his timescales through circumstances which you wouldn't imagine. God had made promises to Jacob. But Jacob wasn't the first person to receive them. His father Isaac before him and his father before him Abraham had received promises and a covenant agreement from God that were amazing blessings. Jacob's name, just so you know this, Jacob's name was changed by God to Israel. So he is Israel, the sons of Israel, the children of Israel as they're known, the nation that came from Jacob and his 12 sons. That was a nation that came out of one person. That was God doing his work. And we've recounted here, as we've read it in the first seven verses, the names of those sons. Here is God at work, fulfilling something he had promised to Jacob. Listen to this, Genesis 35 verse 11. I am God Almighty, God speaking to Jacob. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I will give to you, and I will give the land to your offspring after you. That's Genesis 35, 11. There's a promise from God made to this man, Jacob. A nation's going to come from you. Nations, in fact. Kings are going to come from you. There's a promise from God. And he says, in the land that I've given... I gave to Abraham and Isaac. I'll give it to you and your descendants after you. And that's interesting. Because the promise that God made with Abraham at the very beginning was that he would have a lot of descendants and that he would have a land possession. But at this point in history, it had not yet been given to them. So this is going back 430 years before what would then happen through the Exodus now go back another 220 years or so. So you're going back more than half a millennium to Abraham. Around about 2100 BC. And God calls him from where he was to live a different life. Listen to this in Genesis chapter 12. Now the Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you. And make your name great. So that you will be a blessing. And in you. All the families of the earth. Will be blessed. There's God making a promise. He called Abraham and said. Get up. Go there. And I'll bless you. you know, God says the same thing. To people today. He says get up from where you are. I'm going to take you here and get up and go. I'll bless you. I'll do something that you would never imagine. Turn with me now, if you wouldn't mind, to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11 gives us an insight into these promises 
that were made to Abraham, then to his son Isaac, and then to Jacob about them. I should have said that Isaac received a very similar promise from God that you're going to be the father of many nations. And you're going to have a land possession. I'm going to do this for you. He'd said it to Abraham. He'd said it to Isaac. He'd said it to Jacob. And then half a millennium passes. Look at Hebrews 11. Into the New Testament now. Into what's known as the great chapter. The hall of faith. Uh, Examples from the past. Of people from whom. We are encouraged in the matter of our faith. And just see something about. The promise that was made to Abraham. We have to go back there because that's where it started. Verse 8 of Hebrews 11. By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith he went to live in the land of promise. As in a foreign land living in tents with Isaac and Jacob. Heirs with him of the same promise. Abraham lived a long time. He saw Isaac his son and Jacob his grandson. And they lived in tents. They didn't have a permanent possession there. Verse 10. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations. Whose designer and builder is God. By faith Sarah herself. Received power to conceive even when she was past the age. Since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore from one man. And him as good as dead were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, They desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore God is not ashamed. To be called their God. For he has prepared for them a city. Now we're just going to really quickly touch on this. It says that Abraham obeyed. When the gospel is preached. The salvation. That God provides for sinners. In his son. Who came into humanity and lived the perfect life that none of us could as sinners. And then offered himself to God. As the means by which God's wrath against sin would be satisfied. Knowing that he would be raised from the dead because nothing could hold him in death. Because he had no need to die because he was guiltless. And because he was God he had power over death. And he demonstrated that when that gospel message as we call it. The word of that and the promises of eternal life that Jesus made, which was just echoing the promises that God had made for centuries before. When people say, that's what I want, they obey what they've heard. Jesus said, come to me. Jesus said, believe. They're not passive things. They're things of action. And when God spoke in Abraham's situation, Hebrews 11 here tells us that Abraham obeyed and got up and went. Why? Because God had made him aware of what he was going to do. Be encouraged about what God has made aware to you of what he's going to do. And you know, if your faith is faltering, get back into God's word and see there what it is that God has promised he's going to do. And your faith will be bolstered. Together with Jacob and Isaac, they were heirs of the promise. There's the word. God had said, 
I'm going to build a nation from you. In fact, nations. Countless numbers of people will come from you. And you'll have a land inheritance. It was a very physical, earth-based thing. But they were heirs of the promise. You know, those who trust what God has done in Christ Jesus to save sinners. We are no longer enemies of God. And children of the devil, as it's how it's described. But we're actually, we're adopted sons, is how Paul describes it. We, we're adopted into the family of God that we might enjoy as heirs, the promises of God. It all comes together so beautifully, doesn't it? What was it that motivated Abraham and Isaac and Jacob to carry on in a life where God has made promises, you need to go and study their lives, and it seems over years nothing is really happening? What motivated them? It says because they were looking, and Abraham particularly, for a city beyond. There was something greater than this world that God had revealed to Abraham. And you know, that's what God reveals to us through Christ and through his word today. There is something so much greater beyond this life that we can enjoy because God says, I'll do this for you. Come into it. Enjoy it. And in so doing, I'll have pleasure in you doing that. They didn't receive the fulfillment of the promise in their lifetimes. Israel as a nation wasn't a nation until after they had come out of Egypt, the Exodus story. Essentially, they were an ethnic group. When Jacob came down to Egypt, because Joseph had been raised up as the second in command to provide a means by which people suffering in the famine circumstances could be saved because of his wisdom and his knowledge, Jacob was persuaded to come down to where his son was, the provider, the saviour. And to enjoy those things. And he came down with his extended family. 70 of them. Abraham had received the promise. He was an old man. His wife certainly was beyond the age of bearing children. But God still intervened. God said I'll do it. And he did it. Greater than we can imagine. In a time scale that baffled Abraham. He would have thought it was going to happen quick. But it didn't. Isaac arrives. Long time later. 23 years later, in fact, I think it is, if not more, 25. God works in his timescales, but he's always at work. Jacob has come down with 70, and after 220 years, it's an ethnic group. But what do we read in Exodus chapter 1? That last verse 7 in our portion, they increased greatly, they multiplied, and they were exceedingly strong. God is at work. Over that period of 430 years from when Jacob came down with the 70. Then there was this population explosion. Which when you get to Exodus chapter 12. I don't want to impinge on other people's talks here. But Exodus 12 it says that 600,000 men on foot came out in the Exodus. Plus women and children. Now if you put one man with one woman. You're over a million. 1.2 million. You put lots of children and if you've got a command to be fruitful and multiply, you take advantage of that and you have lots of children. How big was that nation that came out? That's here in these first seven verses. Seventy came down. Here are the names of them and the heads of the households and they were increasing in strength and in number. God was at work. 
It says something in Genesis chapter 15, back on the matter about Abraham believing the promises of God. It says that in Genesis 15, God appeared to him and made a covenant with him. He'd made a promise, said, I'll do this. And about 10 years later in Genesis 15, sorry, Genesis 12 was when he made the promise and Abraham went out. Came to the, the area where God said, I'll give this to you. Lived there for about 10 years. He needed encouragement by God and God came in and said, I'm going to make a covenant with you on this matter. And it says in Genesis 15 verse 6 that he, Abraham, believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. Now here's an important thing for all of us. That righteousness is not something that we achieve. It's something we receive when we trust who God is and the promises that he makes to us. It was the same with Abraham. Abraham had some understanding of what was yet to come. A desire for a better country, a heavenly one. He could see something beyond in what God had said to him. And he believed God. He trusted God for that. Something beyond. And for that reason, Abraham was prepared to live his life as he did. In the place where God said he should be. Even though as Hebrews says, he had opportunity to go back. I'm not going to do it. I'm going to go. Where God has said, I will enjoy him. He believed the Lord and he counted to him as righteousness. The people of Israel, Exodus 1 verse 7, were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so the land was filled with them. God was at work. From Abraham to then, 650 years or so, half a millennium. What is God doing? They don't have the land possession that uh, God had promised to Abraham, maybe as we get to the fruitful number of 600,000 plus that then we break into uh, in the latter part of chapter 1, they might even have forgotten some of them, the promises that God had made about that. Maybe they'd even forgotten about the fruitfulness, even looking at themselves and their circumstances. That was God working. Let's not be people who are guilty of looking at our circumstances and think God has abandoned me because God never abandons us. God said he'll always be with us. And God is always working out something to his glory. I'd like you to turn to Genesis 15 with me now because in Genesis 15, this matter of the covenant with Abraham, I want us to see something about how God works when he is fulfilling his promises and fulfilling his covenant. It's Genesis 15. And it's verse 13. If you look earlier in the, in the chapter, you'll see that God appeared again to Abraham to confirm to him the promise he'd made before. But we're going to jump into the story here, verse 13. The account of what happened. It says, Genesis 15, 13. Then the Lord said to Abraham, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years but I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve and afterward they shall come out with great possessions as for you you shall go to your fathers in peace you shall be buried in a good old age and they shall come back here in the fourth generation for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete why is this important it's important because God had made promises he brought Abraham into a covenant remember what a covenant is and then he tells him, this is what's going to happen. 
God does this. He doesn't give us all of the fine detail. But for Christians today who have their hope in Christ Jesus and all that the future beyond looks like because of who he is. And because he lives and is exalted on the throne, the Savior and the Lord of those who will trust him. We have a glorious future ahead. We don't know all the fine details, but God is in his grace so good to tell us some of the details of what are yet to come. But that's, that's for another time. What I wanted us to see in this is that God is working according to his timescales. He said, look, they're going to be there 400 years in Egypt. And then I'm going to bring them out. God said to Abraham, this is what's going to happen. What does he say to him? Essentially, you be faithful. It's not going to happen in your lifetime. But you be faithful because your part in it is as vital as anything that will happen down the line. My encouragement in this is not for us to descend sometimes into thinking, well, God is not at work. When we're going through difficult times and we don't see the things working out in our life as we would expect them to, because we have some understanding of who God is. God is working to his time scale for the blessing of those who are his and for his glory ultimately. And there's something I just want you to notice in the last verse we read there in verse 16. He says, they shall come back here in the fourth generation. Fourth generation there means about a hundred years. We'll go into that another time possibly. But this is the statement. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. You know what this says? It says that those, the Amorites, who were the people who at that time lived in the area of Canaan. God says their iniquity is not complete. Which is a statement to say that God was in his grace patiently waiting for people among the Amorites. To appreciate him for who he is. People of Old Testament times. People of faith were people who acknowledged who God was. It wasn't just Israel. It was people who acknowledged it. And God was patiently waiting. And working. And saying the Amorites. What I'm doing with them isn't complete yet. Their rejection of me is not total yet. But a time is coming when it will be. And when that time comes. Then your descendants are going to come out and they're going to go in and occupy that area. What does that say? It says that God is working at multiple levels at one time. And this is where we need to learn that our perspective of things individually no way compares to God's. Aren't we so thankful that God is the infinite God of all knowledge, of all power, of all grace, of all love, of all ability, that he knows everything in this interconnected web of circumstance and situation in our lives. And he knows. And he can see it all. He's over it all. And here we are in our little vantage point looking a little tiny little bit of it. God was working on multiple levels. God is always doing that. Because he is the sovereign who sees it all. So when we're in a circumstance which may be hard for us. From our vantage point, what does God see? There's something he's working out. If we're in a place where we're full of the joy of the Lord, let's not take our eyes off the fact that God is still doing the same thing and get complacent that um, all's going well. Our lesson here, I think, from these opening verses of Exodus chapter 1 is, and the associated scriptures, is see that God is working in his timescale 
at a level way above, infinitely above our understanding and knowledge because he's working out a plan and a purpose. It reminds me of what God says through Isaiah. In Isaiah 55, I'll read these verses to you. He said, my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways. And my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain and snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, bringing, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. You know, that's all in the purpose and plan in the context of God bringing the means of salvation to his people. God says, the way I'm going to bring that about and the thinking that's behind all of that is just way above anything you can imagine. He says, I've spoken my word. I've spoken it and I will accomplish it. God has promised what he will do for us. Do we believe it every day? Because that's what being a Christian is about. It's about believing that the things that he has shown us in Christ Jesus and in his word are not just for us in a moment to say, yes, thank you for that, and then just carry on as if nothing's really happened, but rather for life to be shaped by it, like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Yes, this massive group of these descendants of Israel, 600 thousand plus in Egypt were under affliction God said it would be affliction they were under slavery we'll get to that wondering how on earth is this in any way a glory to God God was working at levels that they could not see and maybe they'd even forgotten you know when um, Israel actually did come into that <coughs> land of promise and it was given to them before they went in there, Moses said to the generation that would take it in Deuteronomy 26, he said this, when you go in and you enjoy the first of the crops, he says, you bring the first fruits of the crops to God as, a, as an act of worship. Now, that takes a lot of faith because you bring the first of what God gives you, then you're showing your faith that God is yet going to provide. Now, there's a principle of our giving in that as well. You give first knowing that God will provide. But listen to what they were to be reminded of. These are the words. He says, you'll say this when you come and you give this to the priest. A wandering Aramean, i.e. Jacob, was my father. And he went down into Egypt and sojourned there, few in number. And there he became a great nation, great, mighty, and populous. His people would come and bring the first fruits of the ground to God saying, God, I trust you for what you're gonna provide after this. They were told to go back and remember that from little beginnings and the faithfulness of people who trusted God, something absolutely glorious had happened and they were enjoying the fruit of it, literally. Now, to finish, turn to 2 Corinthians 1 verse 20. Favorite verse in recent years for me. We don't have time to delve into the context of it but the verse itself says something wonderful I've referenced how God is working at levels above and beyond our imagining in the matter of saving a people for his glory and for their joy um, he's working at levels that we cannot fathom and that applies to us as individuals but together as God's people 
That's why it does us good to look back and to, to see God fulfilling his promises. In Christ, all of the things that God has said would come to fallen humanity. It's in Christ that all of the promises are made. Look at 2 Corinthians 1 verse 20. It simply says, for all the promises of God find their yes in him. That's Christ. That is why through him, Christ, that we utter our amen to God for his glory. You know, when we utter our amen at the end of a prayer or an expression of thanksgiving, individually and together, and we're doing it through him, God is reminded as we acknowledge in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ that it's in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, it's in him, that all of the things that we have appreciated and enjoyed and are bringing back to him in our praise, it's in him. And also when we pray and we're relying on God and are dependent on him for the things that he has said he will do in his time, according to his purpose, and we utter the Amen through the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to God. God is remembering always that he has made promises to his people. And those promises are in the one who stepped into humanity, God himself. That he might go the way of the cross. Unless a seed fall into the ground and die, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. From something so little and insignificant would come something so glorious. Today, those believers who put their trust in Christ for salvation, yes, from the consequences of sin, but into the salvation of the promises of God that shape life and take us on to this city that Abraham saw and Jacob and Isaac, into the heavenly home, the heavenly land that God has in store for us. He's taking us to what is unimaginable according to his timing and his ways. Jesus said with his disciples before he went to the cross, he took a loaf of bread and broke it and said, this is my body given for you, speaking of his sacrifice. He then took a cup of wine and said, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood and that which is poured out for you. God had made covenants before with Abraham and before him with Isaac. No, before him with Noah, I meant. And even further back. And when God makes that loving common covenant agreement, he wants us to come into it. And Jesus says, the way you come into this is by my blood, my sacrifice. Step into it. Receive it as the only means of salvation and to step into all of the blessings that God has in store. The new covenant in his blood. Genuine Christian faith is a certainty because of the one in whom the promises are secured, the one in whom our hope is found. Hebrews 12, verses 1 and 2, closing verses. Therefore, Hebrews 12 follows Hebrews 11, obviously. Hebrews 11 is that hall of faith, people who trusted their God. And Hebrews 12 then, the writer says, Therefore, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. We need endurance for the race because we can understand it at times. 
Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. How? Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of God. We keep our eyes on the one who is on the throne, who said he will come back for us. Here are some of the promises we don't have time to get into him that he made. He said, if I go, I'll come again. I'm going to prepare a place for you. Numerous promises, I'll give the spirit and so on. In him, as we look to him, we enjoy the promises of God. One thing that God said to Jacob in Genesis 28 and 15 was this. I will not leave you until I have given what I have promised you. Let's pray.